Well, it must be the time of the week where we're getting itchy feet being down here on planet Earth. So here's an idea. Why don't we take a very quick trip and adventure across the universe? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Every week we search out some science secrets lurking around the solar system further through the galaxy and then further still across the entire thing. And we've got a lot of space this week. We're chatting to an astronomy expert, Mark Thompson, who has spent years looking across the galaxy and he talks about some of the most amazing things that he's found. We know the universe formed about 14 billion years ago in something called the Big Bang, and that caused the universe to start expanding. But for some unknown reason, the universe is expanding faster now than it ever was before. And we don't know what's driving that expansion. And we'll stay up there. We're heading to deep space high, the smartest school around. This time, we're getting a lesson on Mars. Mars is red not because of any horrible blood disaster, but because of a mineral called iron oxide that's very common on the planet's surface. And I've got your questions to answer. This week they are on car windows getting misty and boomerangs, why they keep coming back. Find out. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start this week with your science in the news. Scientists are tracking two of the world's biggest icebergs as they drift across the sea. Now, they are as big as the entire city of London. One's even bigger. It's uh, as giant as the entire English county of Cornwall. They are called A81 and A76A, easy to remember. Uh, One of them is over 3,000 square kilometres. Now, they've broken off Antarctica and they are floating across the South Atlantic Ocean. And experts are tracking it to see how it could affect wildlife, shipping and fishing routes. It's amazing that these things happen all around the world, right? Gigantic icebergs break off and just float across the sea, getting in people's way. It's amazing that we now have the technology to study where it is and where it might be going, charting its course. Also, wolves are back in Belgium after 100 years. Conservation measures have meant that the species' numbers have flourished after they were once widely hunted. There are now about 20 wolves back in the country, but it's not all good news as they eat sheep, and local farmers aren't happy about these threats to their animals. You can see both sides, can't you? We always want to boost numbers of creatures that humans have had a part in uh, making them reduce, but it impacts other things in our ecosystem, what else is happening around the world. And experts are looking, back to the South Pole for this one, experts are looking for people to live and work in Antarctica. Their jobs will include counting the local penguins every day, sorting the post that arrives at the world's most southern post office. Now, there's no Wi-Fi or running water, but the job is very popular, even though it's more than 9,000 miles away from here in the UK. I'm not sure if I'd like to do that. I think it might be quite fun for a week or so, but then soon you're trapped in the South Pole sorting mail and counting the same penguins every day, and it is freezing. Let's spin the wheel then to get another episode from our A to Z of engineering series. For the last few weeks, we've been catching up and learning about all the brilliant feats of engineering that... Our history has shown us and some of the people that invented them. And we're going through everything A to Z, all the way from acoustics to, well, zoos. For this, 
we need to step into Engineer Academy and meet our expert, Engus, who will help us spin the wheel to find out what letter we're learning about this week. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's Z. And Z is for zoos. Thanks, Engers. There are over 300 zoos across the UK. When you think of engineering, zoos aren't probably the first thing that come to mind, but they're definitely places where engineering is at the heart of a day out. Whilst architects design buildings, engineers help keep the animals' habitats just right to help keep them healthy. They are responsible for building and maintaining habitats for all the animals, from aviaries to zebras. As well as the animals, engineers also have to consider the welfare and safety of the zookeepers and also the millions of visitors and their ability to see, learn and feel connected with all the animals. Engineers who work for zoos are called life support engineers and are trained in architectural, civil, chemical, biomedical, environmental and mechanical engineering. So to find out more, let's get the lowdown with Engers and the team at Chester Zoo. The first thing you see at a zoo is probably the ticket office and public areas where you can buy food, drink and gifts. These buildings are designed so they can safely accommodate everybody who visits and their different requirements, like children's buggies and wheelchair access. And with nearly 2 million visitors a year to Chester Zoo, a lot of thought goes into things like how people queue up, especially at busy times. Whilst we all want to be in the open air, we also want shelter when it's raining or very sunny. Walking round, it's obvious that different animals have different types of habitats, each designed to take into account each animal's needs and to keep them stimulated. To create the right habitats, engineers need to research not only where the animals live in the wild, but also their behaviour. Animals can spend a lot of time resting, so having a place where they feel comfortable is essential. How they feed is also important. In the wild, many animals forage for food. This keeps them occupied and provides mental stimulation. So how is the zoo habitat going to provide this stimulation? Well, hiding food around their enclosures and inside objects helps. Anteaters have long mouths and a long tongue which they use to eat ants from deep inside ants' nests. By putting their food in long, thin tubes in replica ants' nests, as well as providing stimulation, visitors can see how anteaters use their tongues to eat. And it's not just food that engineers need to take account of. Take the big cats. They need information such as how high they might jump, what's the perfect climate for them, and do they like other big cats, even their own family members? Once engineers have all the information, they can design a habitat that keeps the big cats safe, healthy and happy. What's within enclosures is also important. At Chester Zoo, carbon fibre sway poles encourage the Sumatran orangutans to climb. They look like bamboo and sway in a way that's similar to how they move in the natural habitat. They can even be moved around to keep things interesting. Temperature, lighting and humidity must also suit each animal and relate to their natural cycles. If an animal is adapted to a habitat that's hot during the day and cold at night, like deserts, the habitat must mirror this. 
Komodo dragons need lots of warmth, and greenhouse-style buildings with underfloor heating and water spray helps keep conditions just right. For safety reasons, with most animals, like elephants, monkeys and lions, you have to watch from outside the habitat. But there are times when we can step into a totally immersive experience, such as watching marine life through large glass windows or walking amongst the birds in aviaries. Engineers work with animal behaviourists and safety experts to make sure that the structures of each habitat are strong and stable to prevent animals from escaping and to keep visitors and keepers safe. It's not just animals getting out, though. It's important to stop native animals like urban foxes getting in. Now, conservation and preventing extinction is at the heart of a zoo's work, and nowhere more than ever than at Chester Zoo. Breeding programmes often mean moving animals around, between zoos as well as farther afield, like bringing rhinos over from Kenya to breed, then returning them home to the wild. And when animals can vary in size, from a beetle to an elephant, you might be wondering how it's done. After all, they're not going to fit in a pet carrier like you might have for your cat or dog. The answer is, as you might imagine, engineering. Special transit crates are made, taking into account the exact size and needs of each animal. They also factor in how animals will enter the crates without risk to themselves or the keepers. Thanks, Engers. If you'd like to find out more and meet the team at Chester Zoo, head over to the Fun Kids website. I'm Ian Palgrave-Neath and I work at uh, Chester Zoo. And Chester Zoo is a, what we call a progressive zoo. It does a huge amount for conservation of wild animals and plants and uh, uh, a tremendous amount for uh, conservation education as well. That's our joint charitable aims is conservation and education. And Chester Zoo's been around for 90 plus years and is at the forefront of animal husbandry and our mission is preventing extinction. So that, that's a key job we do and it's great to be part of that. The motto of our founder, George Mottishead, was always building. And at Chester Zoo, we are always building. And uh, we're looking to always improve our facilities, both for visitors and for the animals and plants. So that means we need engineers to help us uh, do that, to create new environments for the animals and facilities for the visitors. We obviously have to provide power to the zoo, you know, to turn on the lights and um, you know, for the tills to work, etc. So, you know, we have mechanical engineers and electrical engineers who are involved in designing those systems to power our buildings, to heat our buildings, to keep our buildings cool. So that, that's a particular expertise that we have in, in the zoo as well. We have a facilities team with about 25 people. They're fully trained in their specialisms and can be on call if any of those systems fail we get the electricity gets turned off or, or a boat ride doesn't work those those people go out and immediately repair those so that we don't uh, have an impact on the visitor experience and we can keep the operations running so in terms of um, my involvement at the zoo I, I'm I'm design team manager and I have a team of our architects who design a range of facilities but we work with engineers from consultancies across across the region who help us uh, with the engineering side so that be structural engineers to design a frame for a building and the foundation it sits on to lighting engineers to give us specialist lighting solutions but also the mechanical and electrical again to help us design some very complex systems something that we're looking at very recently is bringing in alternative technologies that will help us provide additional power 
power, such as solar solar panels, and, and using specialist technology to make us more efficient with our use of electricity and to take away our reliance on gas, which is a fossil fuel that we don't want to uh, to have to utilize in the future. We're looking to use green technologies to improve the performance of our buildings. The zoo was started out uh, using a Victorian house and it's grown through the acquisition of land around it. And the old stable block is something that was not used by the public previously. It was actually where our blacksmith and, and joiners used to work. They, they're now in this fantastic new facility, so we've been able to bring this historic building back into use and allow the public to enjoy its environment. So that is something that is just started construction. So I mentioned earlier about steelwork and foundations. Those have just recently gone in and we're starting to put the walls on this building and the roof to, to create this fantastic facility that will open next spring. Last year, the zoo issued a conservation master plan with targets that take us to 2030 and sustainability is a key part of that. So we've made some commitments around reducing the amount of carbon that we produce, both in building things, but also in heating our buildings and, and general electricity use around the site. So we're looking to be more efficient in the systems we use to bring down the amount of electricity we use. But also I mentioned earlier, putting solar panels on the roofs of our buildings. Another very exciting project we're doing and will open in 2025 is um, Heart of Africa, where we're bringing a lot of African species together in one area of the zoo with a, a whole number of buildings uh, to house those animals but also a, a fantastic new restaurant for, for visitors and we'd actually designed that about three years ago but because of the pandemic we haven't built it so we've now taken the opportunity having issued our conservation master plan to look again at those buildings and make them greener so as I say a lot of them can have solar panels on the roof we're building some of them out of timber instead of steel because there's less carbon involved in timber frame as opposed to steel one. Uh, we're looking to also minimise waste. So that's both in, in the building, but also, you know, with people who supply things to us using recycled materials, things like insulation using wool or plant-based materials rather than something that is manufactured and is man-made. What we try to do with people visiting the zoo is help influence the way they might go home and um, carry out changes to the way they live. Uh, you know, in terms of recycling or, or, or maybe, you know, using more efficient, you know, bulbs, for instance, in their own home that, that will help uh, take away reliance on fossil fuels and damaging environments around the world. So it's, it's a big part. I mean, we have over 130,000 children visit the zoo on school visits and uh, we, we reach many, many more in, in terms of our sort of virtual offer. And uh, that, that's a key key message that we want people to take away is that the little things they can do in their lives that will help protect resources on this wonderful planet of ours. My favourite thing is being part of that mission of preventing extinction. And me and my team and the engineers all have a part to play in that. You know, the, the keepers and the curators are dealing day to day with the actual animals and plants, but we provide the facilities, you know, through our skills for them to be able to do their job. That, that, that is a fantastic thing. The, the, the other thing that is great about the job is being able to go out at your lunchtime and walk into the zoo through the back door, if you like, 
and just see animals and you, you, you see something different every day. The flamingo chicks the other day or, you know, looking at the, looking at the leopard. I mean, it's just um, a, a great thing to do to you know, remind you when you're sat at your computer doing all those technical things that they are the reason why you're, do, you know, you're doing what you're doing. I was very fortunate to grow up in the countryside. I grew up in the Dorset countryside and I lived on a farm and I used to spend many hours down the lanes, up on the heath and um, just grew to have a love of the countryside and of nature. That sort of led me to becoming trained as a landscape architect. So as I say, full circle from growing up, experiencing wildlife to being part of that mission to, to help conserve those things that were important to me as a child. That, that would be that'd be an amazing thing if I was there as a ten year old thinking, twenty years later, yeah I could do that. And that you know, that might lead you to a career path in engineering, which is uh, you know, one of those things about all those children coming to the zoo to inspire them and, and to be the future conservationists. And, uh, you know, that's a big part for us that I haven't mentioned before. It, it, it's influenced pe people to, to have that uh, affinity with nature and want to be part of it and help us in the future in preventing extinction. And that's the letter Z. It's been a zinger. Now, Z is quite a complex letter. Do you think there's any other types of engineers that begin with a letter Z? How about zoning and maybe even zinc production engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com slash engineer. Let's get to your questions then. I love this part of the show. I hope you do too where you send over your questions to me as a voice recording. Voice note over at funkidslive.com. Head there, we've got a big button. You can press that on the Science Weekly page and then chat away. Let me know who you are, ask your question. You can also record it on your phone through the free Fun Kids app. Then it will come through to me and I will do all the science digging. Let's see who's first this week. Hello, listeners of Fun Kids Science Weekly. I am Norman and today I'm going to ask, why do car windows fog up? Thank you, Norman. Why do car windows fog up? It's all to do with condensation. Have you learned about that at school yet? When air gets cold quite quickly, it condenses, it thickens up and turns to water vapour. Now, when you get into a cold air and you breathe out, you're exhaling warm air. That air then hits the cold air, normally around the windscreen that's been there frosting all night, and it cools down very quickly. And because of condensation, it turns all of that air around it into water vapour, which sticks to the car window, which is very cold. It's why you normally get a fogged up car window first thing in the morning. It's been sat out night all night. It's been getting chilly. When you go in, when you breathe out your warm air, you're making it very cold which turns it into water vapor it's all to do with condensation norman thank you for the question uh, let's get another one on who's next hello dan my name is brandon i am seven years old i live in hong kong and my question is why do boomerangs come back brandon thank you for this boomerangs coming back is quite complicated science it's something called aerodynamics which makes sense because simply the fact that you can throw a boomerang very well and it'll come back to you i mean that seems so amazing it must be magic so we know that there's complicated science going on it's all to do because of how 
the boomerang is shaped. Think of it, you're throwing it forward, but it's also tilted at an angle. That means the top of the boomerang spins much quicker than the bottom. And a mixture of those two speeds, throwing it forward and the fact it's spinning, means that it curves through the air because of how the boomerang is shaped like that wing, and it makes it fly in a circle. It's quite complicated to get your head around, and it's even more complicated to actually do. You need to be a proper expert. You need to throw the boomerang with your arm about 20 degrees away from your head. That's really the only way you'll get the whip on it and the spin, which means it comes back to you. Thank you very much for the question, Brandon. If there is something you want answered on the Science Weekly next week, get to funkidslive.com, click the record button on the Science Weekly page. You can leave it there or you can drop it as a voice note over on the free Fun Kids app. And remember, if you want even more of your questions answered, every month we do an entire episode just devoted to your questions is all I do. The only way that you can hear that is by subscribing to us on Fun Kids Podcasts Plus. You get loads more bonus episodes of all your favourite shows there, and that's how you get your questions answered. To get involved, you can get a free trial on Apple and at funkidslive.com. Now, for this week's Dangerous Dan, we're looking at one of the most stunning insects in the world, which is also one of the most deadly. You'll find the monarch butterfly in North America, where every year they travel 2,000 miles from the United States to Mexico so they can hibernate in the winter. They've got brilliant orange-red wings with white spots around the edge, and they're thought to be called monarch in honour of King William III of England. He was Prince of Orange too. Now, Orange was an old part of France that was also held by the Netherlands later on, and because the butterfly is an orange colour... It was named in his honour when it was discovered. And with most insects that are brightly coloured, it's a message to stay away. They are warning predators. I'm toxic, I'm poisonous, you won't like to eat me. So let's not waste all of our time, run along now. Now the monarch butterfly eats a plant called milkweed, and it's that that's toxic. So if something eats a monarch butterfly, they then eat that toxic And it can make you sick, it can make you really ill, it can cause you huge problems with how your heart works. It's amazing that people, animals get sick from eating the butterfly because it has eaten a plant that is toxic. Amazing how nature, the ecosystem and the life cycle of creatures works. That is why this beautiful, stunning, wondrous but deadly monarch butterfly needs to go onto our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week we are travelling into space with someone who knows all. Mark Thompson is an astronomer. He's been on telly. He's got a new show, got loads of books out as well. Mark, thank you for joining us. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, Mark, there are a lot of people interested in space that have their eyes tuned to the night sky. What do we still need to know about space? What are we still looking for up there? Crikey, how long have you got? We knew there's still so much. There's still so much stuff that we still need to learn. We understand, I guess, quite a lot about our solar system. We understand the fundamentals of how stars live and how stars die. They are uh, objects that, that are formed out of uh, giant gas clouds. And we understand the planets and how they move around the solar system. There's mysteries around some of the planets still. And we understand at large the entire universe. We kind of understand fundamentally how we believe it works but there's a lot of unanswered questions for example we know the universe formed about 14 billion years ago in something called the big bang uh, and that caused the universe to start expanding 
But for some unknown reason, the universe is expanding faster now than it ever was before. And we don't know what's driving that expansion. So there's still a whole lot of, of, of questions we do not know the answers to. So it's going to keep me busy and my colleagues busy for many years to come. Now, what amazes me is that the answers to these questions that we're trying to solve may only be answered in in millions of years if we're looking for planets that are millions of light years away that will take us ages to find them what does it feel like as an astronomer who is looking at the night sky trying to find something but you know that the answers may be hundreds of thousands of years away that you might never actually get to solve it yeah but you know any journey starts with a step and you have to begin that journey before you can get to the destination. The answers might just be around the corner. The answers could be hundreds of years away. But until we start on that journey, you just never know. So it's, I think you know. I think that's exciting. I think it's it's the uncertainty. It's the not knowing when we're going to get those answers, and it's the what what other questions is that is that answer going to then raise? Because invariably, we answer one question uh, only to find that it opens up a whole host of other questions that we then need to start addressing. So it's you know I think most scientists accept that it's a never ending job. Uh, but it's an exciting one. And, and, and like I say, every journey begins with that first initial step, which is asking the question. That's such an important part of the process. In your time of being an astronomer, what are some of the amazing answers that we found, things that you've discovered about the universe that has just absolutely blown your mind? Do you know what? Some of the, I mean, it's a great question. Some, some of the, the, the sort of the scientific facts out there have been known for some time. And, and I've done a lot of work with kids uh, and, and members of the public who don't have scientific backgrounds. And there's always facts that amaze people. And one of my favorite facts to share with people is that the, the universe formed, uh, like I say, about 14 billion years ago. And when it did, it was full of hydrogen, mostly hydrogen and a little bit of helium. Yet the universe that we see is full of oxygen, carbon, silicon, nitrogen, a whole host of different chemicals. And of course, if you think about all the elements inside your body that make up human beings, it's much more complex uh, compounds like oxygen, like carbon, uh, and all those elements that make up a human being. And those elements had to come from somewhere. Now, it turns out that the processes within our universe which formed those elements were processes inside the core of a star. And stars are not just pretty lights that shine in the sky. Well, they are pretty lights that shine in the sky. But they're pretty lights that shine in the sky. And actually, that shining process is called thermonuclear fusion. And what it does is it changes. It takes hydrogen and it converts it into helium. And it takes that helium and it converts it into other elements. And actually, every atom inside your body has at some point been inside a star and it's been created inside a star. So you can say, if you like, that you're made of stardust. It's amazing to always remember that, isn't it? Now, you're not just an expert on space, but you're also really interested in sleep, right? So I'm going to ask you a question that I get from a lot of listeners to the show. And it's the, ob- and it's the obvious one. Why do we need to sleep? What's happening every night when we start to feel tired? What, why is our brain sending us these signals? What's the point? Do you know, there's, there's a really simple answer there. We sleep to survive. And it is as simple as that. Now, I could talk about sleep for hours and hours and hours. But when you consider that every living organism on the planet exhibits some form of sleep, some form of, of generally daily process, uh, where there's a period of time where they're a little bit more inactive. I've got my dog sat in front of me now, fast asleep. And every living organism over centuries, thousands of years, millions of years of evolution sleeps. So actually there must be some biological benefit to sleeping. 
And it turns out there's a whole host of things that go on inside your body when you sleep. For example, you, um, your body clears toxins from your brain uh, as you sleep. Um, so, so when you're sleeping, you're clearing out those toxins, you're flushing out those toxins in your brain, allowing your brain to stay healthy. Um, but you're also formulating uh, memories that you've experienced during the day. So you're, you'll be better at memory retention if you sleep more. Kids, if they want to get better results at school, if they get a little bit more sleep, they'll be better at remembering stuff. So the process of sleeping is, is not just something that you just do for rest, although the body does rest, of course, and it, it, it regenerates in, in many ways. Um, lots of the process in the body need that period of inactivity to, to rejuvenate themselves. But there's a whole host of other processes that support our physical well-being and our emotional well-being. If you went without sleep, you would increase your chances of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, dementia, uh, the common cold. There's a whole host of physical and emotional things that if you don't get enough sleep, you start to suffer. So in answer to your question, simply we sleep to survive. If we didn't sleep, we would die. And actually, if you look at food, water and sleep, you can survive without water for about three or four days. You can survive without food for about 20 or so days, assuming you get enough water. But you can only survive without sleep for about 10 or 11 days. And if you don't sleep, you'll probably die. But the important thing to remember, that sounds terrible, and a lot of people worry about sleeping enough and insomnia. But one of the things to remember is that actually sleep is so important that if you are really, really, really tired, your brain will take over and it will make you sleep. I'm sure we've all had that experience where we just can't keep our eyes open anymore and you nod off. That's because your brain is saying, do you know what? You're not getting enough sleep. You're too tired. I don't care what you want to watch on television. I don't care what games you want to be playing. You're going to sleep now. And that's your brain will take control if you're not getting enough sleep and it will make you sleep. Now, uh, you've got this show, The Spectacular Science Show. Just tell us a bit about what it is, where we can see it, what we can expect. Well, you know, I've lectured to general public audiences for many years um, on the subject of science and on the subject of astronomy. But I'm always really keen to get kids involved in science. I got interested in science when I was about 10 years old and I saw Saturn through a telescope and was absolutely amazed at what I could see. So I've been fascinated since I was a child and I'm keen to get other kids interested in science and they are the scientists of the future. So I've constructed this show called Spectacular Science Show which is an hour long uh, experience, uh, sorry it's an hour long, it's an hour and 40 minutes long um, with an interval of fun science experiments and it's explosions, it's chemical reactions, uh, all sorts of different science experiments. There's always something going on on the stage. And it's just a way to just give kids, especially kids, it's a family show, but it gets kids just a moment where they might come out of that theatre with a whacking great smile on their face thinking, do you know what? I love science. I want to learn more. And if I can ignite a spark in uh, children across the country, across the world to get interested in science, then do you know what? Maybe one of those will be the kid who, who, who develops a cure for cancer or develops a cure for dementia, or, you know, if, if we can inspire the next generation, it's such an important part. So I'm taking the show on tour. It's been on tour over the last few years. It started at the Edinburgh Fringe um, about eight years ago, and I'm up and down the country, from Scotland down to uh, Cornwall. So the show is on, I think it's about 30 theatres that I'm taking the show to, and if you head over to spectacularscienceshow.com, there's a section about the show dates, and you can see all the events listed uh, on that page. So that's you, if you want to be that scientist of the future that makes some life-changing discovery, you can start with Mark's show, spectacularscienceshow.com. Mark Thompson, thank you for joining us. Been a pleasure as always, thank you. Let's head up to Deep Space High then for another episode. It's our series 
where we're checking in with Professor Pulsar at the smartest school in the solar system. He knows everything about the universe around us. And this is a new series for Deep Space High. It's called Destination Mars. Professor Pulsar is kicking off a new class project. It's all about the red planet, one in the solar system that gets us Earthlings very excited. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Afternoon class. Okay, okay, settle down. Now, the scientists on Earth are getting very excited about a certain planet in their solar system. Anyone know which one? Is it, um, Earth? After all, that is where they all live. Well, of course they're interested in Earth, Quark. But that's not the one I'm talking about. Although, the one I'm thinking about has got a lot in common with Earth, if that helps. Well, a lot of people on Earth are very interested in Mars. Is it Mars? That's right. So what do we know about Mars? Let's take a look. All right, what have you got? Stats, you've got your hand up first, as usual. Mars is the fourth planet from its sun and is the second smallest planet in the solar system. It's named after the Roman god of war, although I really don't know why. He wasn't planet-shaped. It's because of the planet's red glow, like the blood of war. Ew! Is the surface covered in blood? Of course not. Mars is red not because of any horrible blood disaster, but because of a mineral called iron oxide that's very common on the planet's surface. Let's zoom in and check out the terrain. Mars is a terrestrial planet. It's rocky with craters and mountains, not a gas giant like Jupiter, Saturn and... Sorry, sir. Thank you, Quark. Mars has a thin atmosphere, composed primarily of carbon dioxide. An interesting fact is that even though Earth is much bigger than Mars, they both have approximately the same amount of land mass. That's because most of Earth is covered in water. There's therefore plenty of land to explore on Mars. Not much good if you want to take a boat, though. (laughs) Another interesting fact about Mars is that Martian gravity is only a third that of the Earth's. This means you could leap nearly three times higher on Mars. Quark, that isn't an excuse to start jumping around. Sorry, sir. I need the bathroom. All right, you're excused. Let's zoom in on some of the sites on Mars. That is the biggest mountain I've ever seen. It's not a mountain. It's a volcano and the tallest one we know of in the solar system. It's 21 kilometres high and 600 kilometres in diameter. Even though it's billions of years old, scientists think it could still be active. What next? What a horrible storm. Is it made of dust or sand? Both. Mars has the largest dust storms in the solar system. They can last for months and cover the entire planet. I don't think I'd fancy a summer holiday there. Or a winter one. Mars has seasons just like on Earth, but they're much longer because Mars is further away from the sun. How long is a year, then? 687 days. Getting on for double that on Earth. Each day themselves are about the same as on Earth. 24 hours and then an extra nine minutes. So why does it get so cold? Is it because it's so far away? I mean, I can see the sun there, but it looks much smaller than it does on Earth. That's right, the seasons are more extreme too, because Mars's orbit is in an elliptical shape. That means when it gets cold, it gets really cold. Even the hottest summer's day would not be much above freezing. Not exactly beach weather. 
Let's zoom out and see the whole planet. There's a couple of other important things to see. Wow! Mars has moons! Who knew? Yep, two moons called Phobos and Deimos. Although sometime in the next two to four million years, Phobos is expected to be torn apart by gravity, leaving a ring of dust and debris around the planet. Like Saturn. Sounds pretty cool. World's freezing, in fact. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkinslive.com slash space. We'll hear more about Mars next week with another trip to Deep Space High, the smartest school in the solar system. And that's when we'll be back with another episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've enjoyed any of these series that you've heard today, you can listen to loads more of them on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. You can also get them on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. If you've got a question to ask that you want answered next week, that is the best way that you can do it as well on the app and over on our website. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.